From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 34. I'm really excited for this episode. We're going to really open a huge can of worms in the sports medicine world as we tackle one of the most controversial subjects that you'll encounter in this realm, Um, but we've got a great guest to go through it with us. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas, energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, Really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, Personally, I love it for, for obviously, our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, On a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest has spent nearly 40 years in the sports medicine field with diverse experiences ranging from training professional athletes to pioneering the field of strength building for women during pregnancy to developing rehabilitation programs for injured workers. Additionally, his groundbreaking senior strength building protocol has been implemented in more than 1,000 senior living facilities around the country. He's authored books relating to pregnancy fitness and resistance training for aging populations. More recently, after years of study, he published the groundbreaking book, Iced, in 2013. It's a must-read book for athletes, coaches, trainers, doctors, and therapists, but it reads far from a dull physiological text. In fact, it's an entertaining read about one of the more controversial topics in the field of sports medicine today. Since its release, it's been our guest mission to get this information in the hands of sports medicine professionals, athletes, and weekend warriors alike in order to steer folks away from icing injuries and toward active recovery instead. He now serves as the Director of National Accounts and Professional Sports Teams for Mark Pro. Please welcome to the show, Gary Rinal. Welcome to the show, Gary. 
I'm happy to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. We've had a lot of conversations over the years, but I think it's it's good to take some of that expertise that you've been been able to share with me and and you know get it out to a bigger audience. So I'm I'm sure I'll learn a lot in the process too. Um, obviously, folks have, have heard your bio, um, but I think it would always be good to hear it directly from you so they can get maybe a feel for the the day to day. Let's talk about you know your path to Mark Pro. How did you wind up doing what you do and Give us some some insights on maybe where the company began and, and where it is today. Well, I have a long, long history where I was looking at your date of birth and I realized that I started about six years before you were born. <laughs> and so, and then I was like, wow, I didn't expect that. <laughs> uh, but I started in uh, 1973. Uh, I opened the seventh Nautilus gym in the world. That was an exercise equipment product that was very, very popular back in the early days of sports medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, you mostly will see Hammer, and Hammer was the son of the guy who invented Nautilus. That's who invented Hammer. So it kind of followed the same ideas and path and training philosophies. And when I started in the business, there wasn't sports medicine per se. In fact, the orthopedic surgeons in town would refer me their athletes post-op because I had the only Nautilus equipment in the town and I knew how to use it and they trusted me and there I was doing, in effect, post-op physical therapy, but I'm not a physical therapist, but that's what was happening. And insurance companies were actually paying me, by the way. No fraud involved. They just said, well, okay, the doc sent them and go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we learned very early on was that if you trained hard, and that was our whole belief system, was to train hard, not often hard. Mm -hmm. In fact, the old word was you can train hard for long, but you can't train hard for long. Mm -hmm. And with that, we learned something. And we learned that if you went too often, you didn't make gains. In fact, if you went ridiculously often every day, like we used to do with weights, you actually got weaker. And we learned about something back then that we called recovery. Mm-hmm. It made no sense to any of us back in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. That, that simply wasn't a word we said. Yeah, sports but science wasn't really a thing back then, was it? <laughs> no, and it, and it was one of those spots in time where we were calling it something, but we didn't really have any understanding of what we were, what we were saying. We just knew that you needed to stimulate, that was the working out, recover, and then you could grow. Your muscles could get bigger and stronger. So we used the word recovery all the time. And in fact, we even learned that if you worked out really hard and you weren't accustomed to it, you needed to come back the next day, maybe the next two days, and do a light workout doing the same things you did hard just to flush your muscles out so that you could feel better. You wouldn't be so stiff. In effect, we did what we learned back when I first was told, uh, back in the late 50s when I started in sports, uh, for your millennials, that's last century. uh, (laughs) Back in the late 50s, every coach told us to walk it off. If you were tired and sore, they said, don't sit still, it'll tighten up, walk it off. Well, we never knew why that worked. We didn't know what it was. We just knew it was true. And the same thing came true when we started using the Nautilus equipment and doing, in my facility, I had the negative-only machines. So we could do negative-only exercise, and it's brutally hard 
and you get strong very fast with infrequent workouts. And it's like, wow, this is pretty cool, a new idea. So we did it, but we learned you had to recover before you could grow. And as time would pass, I would do different jobs all in the strength building world. I went from training professional world-class athletes. Uh, I lucked out. I happened to have a few superstars in my town. At the time, Franco Harris uh, uh, would spend the summers right down by my gym. So I trained Franco for years. He was a running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Many say one of the greatest running backs of all time. Absolutely. Uh, but I lucked out. And I he happened to come to my gym. And, and I got to train him. And we had to push people to understand that you needed to recover after you stimulated. And then you would grow. And I was like, oh, okay. So my next project was with women during the pregnancy year. I had already learned my lesson. <laughs> and I realized you had to stimulate, recover, and grow. The next project I did was with the elderly. Mm-hmm. And I did the same thing. I took a sports medicine model to the senior living industry. Today, there are over 2,000 facilities in the country that have my protocol. It was a simple sports medicine protocol, by the way. It wasn't complicated. I simply said, if you look at the people, they're too weak to walk. Why are they too weak? Are their legs broken? No. Are they paralyzed? No. Well, what's wrong? Well, they're too weak. Well, how do you make them stronger? Well, in the traditional nursing home setting, they were playing with marbles and balloons. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that ain't going to work. <laughs> you need to put them on Nautilus leg press machines and MedEx leg press machines and get them strong. And I picked those two brands because they really were built with safety in mind. I wouldn't have taken them to a, to a gym and loaded them up on a squat rack. That wouldn't have been a good plan. It wouldn't have been safe. But in the stationary seated supported machine, we were able to get really good results. And still today, there's, like I said, there's over 2,000 facilities that do it, that do my protocol. And I kept learning about the need to recover. And around the 2000 mark, I, at that point, the year 2000, uh, I was uh, just leaving the corporate world where I had been a program development director in a billion-dollar-plus rehab company. At that point, I had taught thousands and thousands of therapists, doctors, athletic trainers on the topic of strength building uh, for different topics, for athletes, for women during the pregnancy year, for the elderly in my sports medicine for 95-year-olds. And when I say thousands of thousands, I'm not exaggerating. I'm underestimating how many there have been. Uh, at one point along that space, I was the general manager of the medical division for Nautilus International. And doctors from all over the world came to talk to me about what I was recommending regarding strength building and the process you had to follow to stimulate, recover, and grow. Now, today, that's not news. There's plenty of information out there to explain that process. But back in my day, in the early 70s, 80s, it just wasn't there. But we learned. And around the two, the year 2000, I made a decision to leave the corporate world and go and work with professional athletes again. That was my goal. I wanted to go back to that space. And I realized that there were a lot of very qualified people. Uh, and, and what I mean by that, the Eric Cressy's who had <laughs> kinesiology degrees and, and all kinds of books and articles and things. And I went, holy smokes, 
this isn't like it was the last time I was here. Last time I was here, I was the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> and now I'm not even qualified to be in the room. And I went, okay, well, I still want to go. So what am I going to do? Well, how am I going to do this? And I made a decision. I made a decision to become an expert on the topic of recovery. Absolutely. And recovery was a new thing that people were talking about. The training aspect was very formalized, but recovery was not very well uh, explained at all. And, and I'll prove that to you uh, and to your audience. I have asked hundreds and hundreds of people that strength train other individuals that provide conditioning instruction to other people. So people like you, Apollo Ono's trainer, uh, out of the National Strength Coaches Association, their head trainer there, all over the country, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I've asked uh, athletes, trainers, uh, doctors, therapists, anybody who was involved, do you keep a log of your uh, of your training? Oh, yeah. Well, like, so could you tell me how many bench pressures you did six days ago? Oh, yeah. And could you tell me all the exercises you did and if those exercises produced a favorable result that was beneficial and measurable? In other words, it applied to your sport or to your to why you were doing this the strength strengthening. And it was oh sure, I've got it here, it's all here. And do you have like plans for the future? Well, yeah, of course. We yeah, here, you know, here's what we expect to be, uh, you know, three months from now. And I said, well, that's very interesting. Could I see your recovery log? Thus far, nobody's ever produced a recovery log. <laughs> and I went, well, isn't that interesting? The thing that doesn't necessarily matter the most, but clearly matters a lot, is completely neglected in the record-keeping process. And I said, well, how would you know if what you're doing is properly spaced between that stimulus recovery and growth if you're not keeping records of your recovery process? You know, what you did this following the workout and you felt great the next day. You did this following the workout and you felt terrible the next day. Have you kept track of that? Have you thought about what you needed to do? Have you, have you compared your notes with other strength coaches? And the answer has always been no. Now, I'm not here to ask you that question. Now, I suspect that, that at your level, you do keep uh, recovery records nowadays. But back in 2000, no, no one ever said yes. You see it more. It's different than it was two decades ago. So I said, I want to be the best person in the world. And I, yes, I do have lofty goals, but I want to become the best person in the world on recovery. And with that, I said, I'm going to have to understand and learn everything available on the process of tissue preservation and regeneration. And what I mean by that is this. When you train, when you get hurt, when there is tissue damage, whether it's microscopic or giant, who cares? When you have damage, between the time of the damage and when you are fully recovered, what happens? Did you lose any additional or did you preserve that which wasn't damaged in the original trauma and go forward? Well, that'd be very important. Tissue regeneration or tissue preservation is huge. And then the tissue regeneration, what is it that helps that tissue regenerate to become bigger and stronger and will recovered and bigger and stronger? 
So I started learning about those things. And the more I studied, the more I understood. And the more I understood, the more I realized there wasn't very much about the topic that a lot of people understood. You know, there was this person over here that talked about nitric oxide. And there was this person over there that talked about angiogenesis. And over here, someone talked about PGC alpha one and all these different little niches of the process. Uh, there are some people that believe, you know, drink this after you train and that's all you need to do, you know, recovery drink. And then others say, no, you actually need to eat a recovery bar. And then others would say, no, 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 no. What you need is recovery clothing, recovery socks, recovery shirts. And I said, well, you know what? You can eat anything you want to eat. You can drink anything you want to drink. And you can wear anything you want to wear. But until you decongest the area and restore circulation around the damaged site, all your results are compromised. And there went my focus. Once I understood, yeah, there are a hundred people out there talking about recovery, but they're talking about out here in the, what am I going to drink? Hydration. The systemic realm, more so. How am I going to rest? Mm -hmm. All those things had all their spots. But back here, the simple thing of tissue preservation and regeneration was pretty much completely absent. In fact, when I originally wrote my the first article I wrote on the topic, when we Googled it and searched it, we couldn't find the, the, the words anywhere, anywhere in a worldwide search. We couldn't find the words tissue preservation and regeneration in the same sentence. So as far as I know, I'm the first person to ever put the two words in the same sentence. And I went, okay, so what do I need to know? And with that, I quickly realized that if you want to decongest the area in and around the damaged site, the last thing you'd want to do, the last thing you want to do, would be to make it cold, sit still, and wrap it tightly. And I was like, well, wait a minute, that's what almost everybody does when they have tissue damage, whether it's a a pitcher throwing a baseball or whether someone that rolls their ankle or, or a foul ball off the shin or off the plate. And you go, well, wait a minute, everybody, I'm going to go out there and tell them that what they're doing is wrong based on what? Mm-hmm. And that became a big question because I know I'm right. Right away, I knew I was right. I knew that sitting still with a bag of ice wrapped tightly around the site was not, was no possibility of that preserving and regenerating tissue. There's no chance that could work. And I said, well, okay, let me let me get real deep. So I started reading, reading everything on the topic I could find. And it pushed me over to a category of ice. Mm -hmm. And ice was the big issue. Ice was the thing that almost everybody believed. And it was tied into a protocol called the rice protocol. That's rest, ice, compression, elevation. So I'm sitting looking at it and I'm going, well, that protocol is wrong. I can prove it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, no, you need to go prove it. You can't just say you can prove it. Go prove it. So first I read all the literature and organized all the facts. Organizing the literature, what I quickly found was summarizing the four worldwide reviews that were available when I did my book back in 2012. There's really nothing more now except confirming the same point. Mm -hmm. Although popular, this is the conclusion statement of all the worldwide reviews, although popular, There is no evidence whatsoever. It's beneficial. And I went, okay, so how do I address this? Well, you have to address it by saying, instead of asking 
why should I ice? Why should I use the rice protocol? Instead, ask, how do I preserve and regenerate tissue? What's the best way to do it? Well, there's no doubt as far as tissue preservation is to decongest the area. You simply got to decongest the area. So if you leave the area swollen, then all results are compromised regarding healing. If you don't decongest the area, healing is compromised. So if you leave it congested, you're going to suffocate and kill otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma. That's for sure. And if you decongest it, you can avoid that problem. It's like, well, wouldn't that be interesting? If you simply decongested it, you wouldn't have the suffocation and killing of otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in initial trauma. Okay, that sounds good. So then you quickly say to yourself, well, what causes that to occur? And a quick look in the literature. It doesn't take long, by the way. Any of your viewers, if you, I mean, if anybody, any of your viewers want the easy path, just go to GaryRinal.com. All my stuff's free. Just go and pull my articles, print them, and hand them out as you choose. Where I explain everything of all the references. But if you were to say, well, wh- how does the area decongest? You've got congestion in the area from the trauma, whether it's something simple like throwing a baseball or something more severe like you rolled your ankle or got hit by a foul ball off the plate on your shin. How does the waste evacuate? Well, there's only one way out. It doesn't evaporate. It's got to go back to the passive lymphatic system. There is no other path out. Well, the passive lymphatic system is precisely that, passive. In other words, if you don't activate the muscles in and around the damaged site, the waste just sits there. If you activate it, you can, in effect, milk the cow backwards. What happens is when you when you contract the muscles in and around the damaged site, that puts pressure on the lymphatic vessels. That then pushes the weight up a chamber, the waste up a chamber. The empty chamber now has negative pressure that pulls additional waste out of the interstitial space and so on. In my visual, it's like milking the cow backwards. Now, I didn't invent the lymphatic system. It's right there in any clinical textbook that you want to read. It's passive. So I immediately said, well, anything that's passive isn't going to accomplish that task of decongesting. If I don't decongest, I'm going to suffocate and kill otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma. So I got to decongest it. Then as far as regeneration, you look at regeneration and say, well, clearly if the area is congested, regeneration is going to be compromised. So you got to do two things. You got to get the waste out. Now you get it out by activating the muscles in and around the damaged site. What would be the opposite of that? Ice it up. <laughs> Sitting still with the bag of ice wrapped tightly around it. Mm-hmm. Now, that could sound to some people, oh, you can't say that. I mean, that's what everybody does. No, that's not what everybody does. Over a million people have heard my message, and I can give you hundreds and hundreds of references. In the major leagues right now, for example, I have players from all 30 major league teams, and there are more than half, well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say it that way. There are at least 10 major league teams that don't ice their pitchers anymore. There's only 30. At least 10 don't ice their pitchers. And of the next 10, many of their pitchers don't ice. And if they do ice, they're icing far less than they used to before they met me. And you say, okay, so you got people to stop icing based on what? I simply explained to them. It's a passive system. You've got to evacuate the waste in and around the damaged site. 
It has to be activated. You've got to use active recovery to move it. In effect, we went back to the information I was told in 1959 by my coaches when they said walk it off, which brings us to where Mark Pro comes in because Mark Pro, in effect, is an electronic way of walking it off with complete control. If you want to do just your right lateral quad, you can do just your right lateral quad. You can go anywhere you want. You say, well, it's just my right shoulder kind of down. Okay, I can do it right there. So we can walk it off electronically. So now the big question comes up. If you decongest the area in and around the damaged site and you avoid those problems, how will that help with tissue regeneration? I mean, I get that it stops further loss because now you don't have the congestion suffocating and killing those otherwise perfectly healthy cells. So that's not happening now. So what what would how would doing that help with tissue regeneration? Well, it just so happens that that same muscle activation that removes the waste or decongests the area simultaneously causes sprouting angiogenesis or recapitalizing the area around the damaged site. And these are the two big things you've got to do, regardless of whatever else you do. I don't care what other technique you do, whether it's dry needling or massage or or looking at the stars at night. I don't care what you do. All results are compromised until you decongest the area and restore circulation in and around the damaged site. And I've said that now at universities where I've spoken to very smart people who have lots of letters after their name. Not a single person has ever said to me, well, that's not true. Well, of course it's true. Until you decongest the area and restore circulation around the damaged site, all results are compromised. Okay. So then I went, well, let me see if I can understand this. What's the next big problem with loss? We're going to walk away now from the suffocation because we're going to solve that problem by decongesting the area. But now let's go to what else causes loss. Well, disuse atrophy. And anyone who has ever seen someone come out of a cast after six weeks, you notice that the muscles are significantly smaller. Uh, very often it looks like there's something wrong with the limb because it's so atrophied. And now you go, well, so how do you prevent atrophy if you're not using it? Because disuse atrophy is from disuse. Well, it just so happens that if you activate the muscles, the muscles produce something called PGC-alpha-1 that blocks the disuse atrophy. That's not my invention. Again, that article is available on my website with all the references to show you why it's true. But the muscles produce and release the myokine PGC-alpha-1. The PGC-alpha-1 blocks disuse atrophy. Now, why would it do that? Well, it does that so that you don't waste, because you don't want to lose, you know, it isn't just the muscles, by the way, that atrophy. Everybody goes, the muscles, the vessels, the bones, everybody atrophies. So it's like, well, that's pretty ingenious. The same stress, the same loading technique that causes the waste to evacuate simultaneously causes the restored circulation in and around the damaged site through angiogenesis. That same stress also prevents disuse atrophy. And you go, wow, this is getting pretty remarkable. It just so happens that there's more. That same stress helps to reorganize the repaired tissue, which helps you avoid adhesions. And adhesions are a nightmare in the rehab process. It's, it's, what, it's a terrible thing. If you ever watch someone having, having adhesions broken, it's tears in the eyes. It's a miserable process. Well, why don't you just begin to reorganize that repair, repair tissue right up front by loading the tissue? 
well, we can't safely do that. Well, yeah, you can electronically. It's simple to do electronically. Because you can put from a slight twitch to a significant contraction, whatever you need, whatever you want, whatever's correct. I have a simple rule. Use your brain, never cause pain. Pretty <laughs> much that settles all the questions. <laughs> now, with that said, there's something else that I believe, everything I've said so far is true. It's, a, it's simply clinical evidence. The facts are there. This next thing, I think I'm right. The literature is not filled with proof, but I believe I'm correct. And it's called myostatin. And myostatin levels elevate when you're inactive. When myostatin levels elevate, myostatin blocks muscle regeneration. When you activate the muscles aerobically and you actually do work, like say with a muscle stimulating device like Mark Pro or a clinical unit uh, that I'm also affiliated with. But if you do that, then the muscle activation raises the folostatin levels and lowers the myostatin levels. Now, remember, I, I said there that we're in my kind of, this is what I think, but I'm reading everything. I'm looking at everything. I'm going, that's got to be true. And the reason it has to be true, remember, it's my opinion. But here's why in my mind it has to be true. If you had disuse atrophy, for lack of use, your myostatin levels would elevate to prevent muscle regeneration because clearly if your immune system, if your innate intelligence was lowering your muscle mass through atrophy, you wouldn't want to simultaneously inside the same system regenerate the muscle. So the myostatin levels go up as the loss goes down. So as the disuse actually becomes greater, the myostatin levels elevate. When you lower the myostatin levels, the disuse atrophy is less. Of course, that just has to make sense. Now, if somebody has information to say what I just said makes no sense, okay, I'll take it, but I'm telling you, I've read all the stuff available, and I've <laughs> talked to some really smart people on the topic, and nobody has said to me, that doesn't make sense. So that, that part's in parentheses. I'm nearly sure all the rest is true. The muscle activation that gets the waste out simultaneously causes the angiogenesis, the, the, the restoring circulation around the site, simultaneously prevents disuse atrophy, simultaneously, same stress, by the way, you don't have to do it four different times, same stress helps to reorganize repaired tissue. So all of a sudden, I'm sitting and I'm going, hey, I know the answer to this question. But you have the question first. The question is, how do you preserve and regenerate tissue post-trauma? Slight or significant? Doesn't make a difference. The only thing that changes is if, if it becomes a clinical issue, it flips over to a prescription version of the Mark Pro. Other than that, same thing, same process. It just flips over to a, you know, driven by a physician's order as opposed to Mark Pro, which is an over-the-counter product. Absolutely. So now you're stopping and you're going, this is just so simple. Why doesn't everybody realize this? Well, the fact is, as I explain this to people, I get people, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 people at once go, I get it. Well, I know. And, and it's, it's simple. In fact, I had a doctor accuse me of making it sound too simple, an MD, an orthopedic surgeon. said, you, gotta, you make it sound too simple. <laughs> I said, it has to be simple. If we were complicated, we'd be gone. There's a good Einstein quote about that, isn't there? <laughs> like just imagine a different stress. If one stress, one process got flaced out, a different process prevented disuse atrophy, 
a different process prevented adhesions and a different process caused angiogenesis. Could you imagine how complicated it would be to heal yeah. or recover? So I have people who will say to me, well, Gary, you know, I just want you to know, I, I, I've been, uh, I've been in this business for many, many years, 25 years. And I can tell you that, uh, that, that you can do the rice protocol and it's very effective and works. Mm-hmm. And I say in spite of your efforts. <laughs> so here's a question for, I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears on you is, it's, it's interesting that here we are in the 2000, well into the 2000s and, you know, the onus has been put on you to prove something that has remarkable anecdotal support, right? Like you mentioned, over 200 pro pitchers and, you know, that's just, we're just talking about baseball in that capacity. It's obviously been really successful across disciplines. Why wasn't that, uh, that standard of proof ever thrown at icing? You know, wh- where did, where did icing originate? I know this is, this is an amazing story that you've told me that I think you, you tell better than others. Where, where did it initially start and how did it become so accepted in the sports medicine community? Well, first of all, I believe I'm the only person ever to trace it back. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that because over a million people have heard my message. My book has been out for what, six years now and nobody's ever said, Oh, I figured that out a long time ago, or okay. I saw a reference where someone else figured it out. There, people have used ice on damaged tissue for less. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. A hundred years. I don't know where they got the ice from a hundred years ago, but there are people who say, "Oh, they've done that for a hundred years." Okay, let's just say they did, but they didn't rest ice, compress, and elevate. That's not what they did. That started back in 1964 or 1962. And what happened was a young boy by the name of Everett Knowles in Somerville, Massachusetts, hopped a freight train and in celebration of his big accomplishment, put his arm up and cheered, hit a stone abutment and ripped his arm right off. Now, when it ripped his arm off, he fell to the ground, thought he broke his arm, had no idea, torn his arm off. It's off. It's not attached. It's in his jacket. It's not on his body anymore. The young boy got up walked up the hill some fellas at a uh at a uh a, a sawmill i believe it was at a mill uh noticed he looked like he was in trouble and they rushed over and they got to him and they called the police and they got him down the mass general when they got in the mass general a young doc there by the name of ronald malt made a decision a decision to change the history of medicine by the way he said, we have a perfectly healthy 12-year-old and a fully intact arm. Let's put it back on. Now, remember, it's 62. No one knows how to do that. But they understood what they needed to do. So with that, they didn't have fax machines or cell phones or text or any of that. They had to go get the people they needed. So someone had to go get the orthopedic surgeon. Someone had to go get the vascular surgeon. They had to go get the people to bring them back to the hospital to do this. In those moments, Dr. Malt gave an order that changed the history of sports medicine. He said, while we're figuring this out, put that arm on ice. Now, why did he say to do that? Well, when you put an arm on ice, that will, in fact, slow down the decaying process. Hence, if you go to a fish market, you'll see the fish are all sitting on ice. Why? Because if they weren't, they would rot. So it's a great idea if you sever your arm and you want to preserve it. It's a great idea. But with that, they assembled the team, and now they 
reattach the arm and a crowd has now gathered outside the hospital and uh, people are just you know, waiting to hear, did it work? Is it going to, what are you doing? And, and the, the hand turned pink. And as the hand turned pink, they knew they had restored circulation. Now, following that, every time the young man did anything, and by the way, he since died. A few years ago, he died, but not from his arm. He, you know, he grew into adulthood, he grew into his sixties before he died. When they left the hospital, it made worldwide news. When he caught a baseball for the first time five, six months later, whatever it was, it made worldwide news. And I mean worldwide news. Dr. Mall traveled the world teaching other doctors what they had done to, re- to uh, attach this severed body part. So this became not only news, but practically celebrity. And with that, the question started. Now, this is where I had to piece the puzzle together. Because it's sketchy to find out who said it first. So therefore, I'm going to tell you, as far as I know, we don't know who said it first. We know Malt gave the order to put the arm on ice. We know that. But we don't know who first said the following. But one of the newscasters following the story said to the doctors, hey, if this ever happens, what do we need to know? Remember, before you just threw the body part away and hoped you didn't bleed to death. So you didn't know anything. You just throw it away. No, no. And now I need to get it to the hospital. What do we need to know? And the doctor responded. Don't panic. Remain calm. That became rest. Keep the severed body part out of the sun, out of the heat. That became ice. Use a tourniquet on the intact part to prevent a bleed out. That became compression. Keep the intact part above the heart. That became elevation. So the Rice Protocol utterly, literally, has nothing to do with managing damaged tissue. <laughs> it has to do with preserving a severed body part and preventing a bleed out. Now, you hear that and you say, well, now, wait a second. Who says that's true? Well, it just so happens that I wrote a book called Ice, the Illusionary Treatment Option. And in that book, or with that book, I had the good fortune of the doctor who popularized, some people say he says made up, uh, others have used the word popularized to explain it, but whatever, he made it up. He's, who, he's who's observed it and named it. His name is Dr. Gabe Merkin, and Dr. Merkin is still alive. He was a few months ago. I'm assuming he's still alive now. He's about probably 84 or 85 years old now. Still a prolific writer and a great guy. I mean, just totally intact. Uh, the last I was with him, he was riding his bike 200 miles a week still. So, and that was about a year and a half ago. So I, I don't know how much he rides it now, but at 83, he was still riding at 200 miles a week. So what Dr. Merkin did was read my book and then publicly recanted. <laughs> said, I made the rice protocol up. Research has clearly shown I was wrong. Don't do it. It delays healing and gives a specific reference to the fact that it causes additional damage. Now, not only did Dr. Merkin publicly recant, but he wrote the foreword to the second edition of my book. Now, I don't know who out there in your audience uh, says that they did something that they're very uh, proud of. They're, they're, 
they're like, wow, I can't believe that happened like that. So I don't think it's proud. It's like, I can't believe that just happened is what it really feels like to me. <laughs> I got the guy who made up the most recognized protocol in Western medicine to not only publicly recant, but write the forward to the book that took down his protocol. Now, by the way, my book has two forewords. The other forward is written by a physical therapist by the name of Dr. Kelly Starrett. Kelly Starrett is a, uh, I suspect you know Kelly. I know Kelly uh, well. For those who don't, Kelly is a rock and sockum, tattooed, really smart, no messing around. If you want to know the answer, he'll give it to you. And even if you don't like it, he'll still give it to you. <laughs> Great guy. Kelly wrote the other forward to my book. In that foreword, you'll see when I first explained all this information to Kelly, now it's been eight or nine years ago, I guess, somewhere around there. Uh, Kelly wrote in my book that meeting me was a seminal moment in his life, in his career. Well, I don't know about everybody listening, but I didn't know what seminal meant. So I was hoping <laughs> it was a good word. Okay. So I'm looking up seminal. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Well, you see, I didn't tell Kelly anything he didn't already know. In fact, I haven't said a thing on this, on this interview that your, your trainers, your doctors, your therapists, your licensed practitioners, your strength coaches, they, everybody, you know, what I just said, I haven't said anything you don't already know, but I put it in an organized order. And how I did that was, first of all, I read all the literature and I read 12 clinical textbooks and Wikipedia. I say that because Wikipedia was actually the most current. I read in the topics of tissue preservation and regeneration and angiogenesis on nitric oxide and how tissue heals, on what causes atrophy, on how myostatin plays in the role. I read every on, on ice, on heat. I read everything you could find and categorized it. It took me seven years. And I traveled around the country. And I interviewed trainers, athletic trainers, doctors, therapists, strength coaches, Apollo Ono's trainer. I believe by the time I first met you, Eric, uh, you already knew. So <laughs> I didn't, I didn't really come. My book was out at that point. So I didn't really come to you. But if I had gotten to you before that, which by the way, I tried, uh, but I was unsuccessful getting to you, but I tried. Um, I would have asked you a very simple question. I asked everybody. I said, uh, you do the rice protocol? Yeah. Uh, you, you use ice? Yeah. Uh, does it work? Oh yeah. You have any evidence of that? Could you give me something so I could add it to my pile of information so I can show and share others? Because my intent is to become the most knowledgeable person in the world in the topic of recovery. So I just want to, you know, be able to categorize what everybody says and why they do it. No one gave me anything. And I went, this is just unbelievable. They're all doing it, but they're just blindly doing it. And there's been 40 years of widespread use, and there's not a single shred of evidence that it's beneficial. And in fact, the opposite exists. There's undeniable proof that it delays healing, increases swelling, causes additional damage, and shuts off the signals to alert you to harmful movement. And you need movement to solve the problem. And you need the signals to prevent you from doing harmful movement. This is crazy. What, what's going on? Well, what's going on is when Merkin made up the protocol in 78, he put it in his 1978 sports medicine book. Remember, Merkin simply observed what happened from 62 to 78, and he named it rest, ice, compression, elevation. The reason, the answer to your question that this all came from, 
how to become popular? It rhymed. <laughs> rice is nice. If rice didn't rhyme with nice, I don't think it would ever become popular because somebody would have raised their hand in class and said, professor, professor, got a question. I, I, I kind of got this all figured out. Now I understand how the lymphatic system works. I understand circulation and angiogenesis and tissue preservation and regeneration. And I just don't see how sitting still with a bag of ice wrapped tightly around the area is going to facilitate healing. I just don't get how that's going to work. But you see, no one ever asked that. To my knowledge, no one, no one's ever said to me, Oh, I asked that question in school. No one's ever said that to me. And I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the most elite doctors, therapists and trainers in the country, meaning the people who've gotten to the top of the heap. That doesn't mean that some guy in a high school isn't just as qualified as the person who was the head trainer for the Yankees. I'm not saying that, but I went to the top of the heap. And I said, what are you doing? Why? Explain it to me. And every time I got those bad answers, I was like, isn't this interesting? Now, by the way, at that point, I knew it was wrong. I knew what they were doing was wrong. But not wrong to where it didn't work, wrong to where it didn't give you the best outcome. And I, just to give you a fast story, I'll give you the short version, but it's something that actually matters. Uh, you know the trainer, and I believe I've showed you the 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 uh, article, I mean, the, the email from him. I believe I showed it to you when I was with you last. So I have an email from a trainer who is a DPT, meaning a doctor of physical therapy, ATC, and now he's with a professional athletic team. Before he was with a team from the United States uh, Olympic, uh, you know, a U.S. national team. I'm not quite sure what you call it in, the, in between years, but they compete in the Olympics. And then in the between years, they, they compete worldwide. And what he sent me was, Gary, got to tell you what just happened. I had a player with a longitudinal quad tear. We measured the blood in the quad with ultrasound. We activated the muscles in and around the damaged site for about six and a half hours. The following day, we measured the blood with ultrasound. His word, gone, G-O-N-E, gone, period. Returned a four to six week injury into running in three days and playing in the world championships in 10. Now, for all of the people who are saying that can't be true, okay, Eric, I will give you the guy's name and phone number. You can go back on the air and tell your audience. I confirmed it because he'll talk. I can't give everybody can't call him, but he'll confirm what I just told you is 100 percent true. Now, not only is it true, but when he called or I called him, I sent him an email back. Then I called him and I said, uh, so what's up? He said, Gary, I'm just shocked how, how fast using your muscle activation technique uh, sped up recovery. I said, it didn't. He said, oh, no, I've been doing this 25 years. It's a four to six week problem. I said, no, it's a four to six week problem if you mismanage the situation. <laughs> if you do it correctly, it's three days running, 10 days playing in the world championships. So why? Why was it? Why did it, what I just said is true? OK, let's look at what had happened with traditional care. Longitudinal quad tear would have immobilized the leg likely would have iced it and compressed it and elevated it and set still. Likely would have done that. By the following day, it would have been a mess. Three days later, the swelling would have been down below the kneecap and wiggling the toes would have likely hurt. 
that have been on crutches and been miserable for about 10 days. Then they begin weaning them off the crutches. So what's happened in that period of time? One, from all the congestion and the lack of circulation, you would suffocate and kill otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma. Remember, when you sit still and you put ice on it and you compress it, you're literally trapping the waste in and around the damaged site and preventing the natural flow of oxygen and supplies. Now, I'm going to say that again because anybody who's listening on the way, what did he just say? I'm going to say it again. If you sit still with a bag of ice wrapped tightly around the area, you literally trap the waste in and around the damaged site and prevent the natural flow of oxygen supplies. Now, if you think that's a good idea, go back to your textbook and reread. That is not a good idea. That's precisely what the RICE protocol does. It traps the waste in and around the damaged site and prevents the natural flow of oxygen supplies. Now, they'll very often say, well, yeah, but no, no, stop. There are no yeah, buts. You don't get to do a yeah, but when you screw up that bad. <laughs> it's not a yeah, but. So here's what would have happened. The swelling would have been very significant for about a week and a half. That congestion would have suffocated and killed otherwise perfectly healthy cells that were not involved in the initial trauma. There would have been significant systemic disuse atrophy all the way down the leg would have, there have been some, because there's no action going on. In a week and a half, two weeks, there'd be significant atrophy. There'd be faulty scarring as a result of the lack of motion and reorganization of the repaired tissue. That's just an obvious reality. And by the way, putting the ice on it causes excessive collagen. And again, that's in the literature. Everybody wants to read it. And I have all the references to prove that. But even, even if it didn't do that, you're causing faulty scarring by not moving and reorganizing repaired tissue. On top of that, the disuse atrophy. So if you skip that, if you don't suffocate and kill otherwise perfectly healthy cells or not involved in the initial trauma, if you don't have faulty scarring because you've activated the muscles in and around the damaged site and kept it clear, and you don't have the downstream disuse atrophy, you've lowered your myostatin levels so the muscle can regenerate, it takes three days running, 10 days playing in a world championships. It takes four to six weeks if you mismanage it. Now, I have said that and explained that to at least several thousand people. I've never had anybody say it didn't make sense. Now, by the way, I have proof it's true. And there's not a question. I have proof it's true. And then I have trainers all over the country who send me very similar information. Uh, players hit by foul balls off the shin. They got it clear in less than 24 hours. Uh, hit by pucks in, in the NHL. Uh, I don't know whether we mentioned this, but but over 100 professional athletic teams listen to me. That doesn't mean it isn't only to me, by the way. This isn't an only world out there. But I have contact and conversation with over 100 professional athletic teams, some far more than others. But, you know, Eric, you're in the world, too, so you know what happens. They don't necessarily listen to everything you say, but nobody tells me to get lost. <laughs> now, with that said, I have over 500 collegiate teams and then a very significant uh um, influence in the U.S. military, up into including for anybody who's saying, well, who's this guy I think he is? Okay, I'll just tell you one crazy one. I was invited to the White House to talk to the President of the United States personal physical therapist who comes from a very high level in the military because he heard about what I was saying and asked me to come and explain it. And I did. 
And as soon as he was assigned to his follow to his next post when he left the White House, when that president transitioned out, I was one of the first people he called to come and explain the information to the new people that he was in charge of. So am I crazy? Probably a little. I don't deny that. I mean, people say, who's, who's who you think he is? What I think I am is a very, very organized reporter. And I'm not hung up on you thinking I'm wonderful or smart. That's not the goal at all. My goal is to demonstrate to you that I have not told you a single thing you didn't already know. I simply organize it and put it in a sequence that is easy to understand that's different than the way they taught it in school. They did not teach you in school that the rice protocol traps the waste in and around the damaged site and prevents the natural flow of oxygen supplies. They did not teach you that. But I just told it to you, and you can't ever forget it now. And you can never tell me it's not true. Oh, oh, but I'm putting it on to prevent swelling. Oh, really? So your immune system constricts the damaged vessels and dilates the healthy surrounding vessels and increases perfusion. So your innate intelligence, your immune system, is literally manipulating the process to bring that fluid to the damaged site, which, by the way, mobilizes the repair and cleanup crew and packages the waste for evacuation. But that's happening. Your immune system doing it, but you think it's wrong. Okay. Your immune system puts fingernails and eyelashes where they belong, but you think it's mismanaging damaged tissue. <laughs> so let's just say you're right. Let's just say you got it. You're, you're so smart. You're right. You're going to prevent the fluid from getting to the damaged site. Really? How much are you going to prevent? 80%? 100%? 12%? 17%? Too much is there? How will you know when you get there? Well, wait a minute. Let me ask the question. How tight should you make it? How still should you be? How cold should you make it? Let's do a simple question. You have a deep bone bruise, a deep one. How cold should you make that? By the way, you can't give an answer, neither can anyone you know, because there is no such answer. But let's just say it's 72 degrees. Okay, how do you know when you got it to 72? I mean, unless you stick something in the skin and measure, you're not going to know. But how would you know when it's at 72? And how long should you keep it there? And how often should you bring it to that temperature? And what's the goal of doing that? These are simple clinical questions that there are no answers to, by the way. But let's just say you were right and you were supposed to get to 72 degrees. How would you get it to 72 degrees without destroying the superficial tissue? How would you do that? Because you can't, by the way. You take the deep tissue down to 72 you're going to cause frostbite on the skin. Oh, but we're going to put a towel over it. Then you're not going to get it to 72. Mm-hmm. You can't do both. And you say, well, yeah, but no, 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 there aren't any yeah buts. <laughs> you can't do what they claim you should do. And not only can't you do it, but after 40 years of widespread use, there isn't even a protocol. Let's say something simple. Someone's 30% body fat, someone's 8% body fat. How are you going to accommodate for the insulin factor of the body fat? That's a great point. Uh, by the way, nobody else can answer that question either. <laughs> and the reason is because it's the stupid question. Yeah. Now, the next thing is you say, well, what about if it's a superficial uh, bone bru- uh, bu- uh, uh, muscle bruise? It's superficial. You're going to put ice on it. How cold should you make it? 72? So a superficial bruise, a superficial muscle bruise 
you know, because remember, the muscle's bleeding. That's what the bruising is. Superficial should be 72 degrees, and a deep bone bruise should be 72 degrees. Obviously, you can't do those two things without destroying something along the process. And by the way, nobody, nobody ever give a number that you should take it to. Not only that, if there was a number you should take it to, you wouldn't know when you were there. And not only that, but you wouldn't know how to accommodate for the insulating factors of body fat. And then on top of all of that, if I said, well, why again are you doing this? Oh, well, uh, it's, it's to prevent swelling. Are you sure you want to prevent fluid from getting to the damaged site? Go back and reread your textbook. Your textbook says, and I'm nearly quoting, close quote, the damaged vessels constrict, the healthy surrounding vessels dilate and increase perfusion. The fluid is being deliberately brought to the damaged site to mobilize repair and cleanup crew and package the waste for evacuation. It's that simple. Why would you try to prevent it? Well, uh, okay, you understand. Anybody gives you those answers, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. I have a paper called uh, The Cold Hard Facts, Weighing the Evidence. It's free on my website. Read it. Everything that I just explained to you is there in detail with all the references. I want to get your take on something, Gary. So you, so we're, um, we're 53 minutes in and I have actually made note of the fact that you have not really used the word inflammation once, but you've used the word regeneration 15 to 20 times. And it makes me start to think that you know, kind of the, the fallacy of icing runs very parallel to the, the fallacy of tendonitis, right? So what we've, we've heard for, for a long time is just about every overuse condition of, of any, you know, muscle, musculotendon junction has been labeled tendonitis for a long time. And then in the last 15 years, we've seen research come out that really people have said, Hey, we need to stop calling this tendonitis. We need to refer to it as tendinosis or even, you know, more broadly tendinopathy, meaning we need to really assume that the problem is re- is degeneration as opposed to true inflammation. Do you think that 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 misnomer, the the concept of everything being an inflammatory problem, when in reality it was much more chronic than that? Degenerative changes. Anyone who's ever had an Achilles tendinopathy knows that it doesn't just go away when you pop some Advil. Like it's it sticks around for an extended period of time. It comes and goes depending on your exercise volume. Do you think that you know this whole discussion actually in a lot of ways runs parallel? Do you think that some of the popularity of of icing has come because so many people think that we're just trying to work on inflammation when in reality inflammation is part of that that healing cascade that you're talking about that goes from you know decluttering the area to actually regenerating subsequently? Well, you're 100 percent correct. And here, here's what happened. I actually have a paper called uh, um, uh, anti-inflammatory where we explain all but my co-author is the editor-in-chief of the Physician Sports Medicine Journal, and we explain everything. But to give a quick answer, and that's free on my website, by the way. You can link to it and give away anything you want. I don't charge for any of my stuff. But what happens is this. There are three steps to healing. Every clinical textbook, same steps. Inflammation repair remodel, period. Now, if you went to the fancy school, it's, it's uh, they, they changed the words a little bit, and they call it proliferation and maturation. So it's they it, instead of repair and remodel, they call it proliferation and maturation. Who cares? Same thing. It's inflammation, repair, remodel. And you say, well, why would I want to block the inflammatory response? Well, actually, the literature is very clear on the topic. If you block the inflammatory response, you've screwed the system. And in fact, one of the great papers, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, uh, written by Buckwater, called Loading, 
uh, it's in all my papers, I reference my book heavily, uh, written in 1999. Buckwater has a quote in there from a guy by the name, I think his name is Ledbetter, I think, I think it's how you say his name, but it's all quoted in all my stuff, so it's easy to find. Ledbetter says, there can be inflammation without healing, but never healing without inflammation. Now, why do we think we're going to block inflammation? Well, first of all, uh, putting ice on the area does not block inflammation. Actually, putting ice on the area causes additional inflammation, not less. So if you want to increase inflammation, make it really, really cold and cause additional damage, <laughs> and then you'll have a greater inflammatory response. Uh, I don't recommend doing that, by the way, but but you need to think it back and say, well, wait a minute. first of all, I shouldn't block inflammation because inflammation is good, not bad. It's phase one of three phases of healing. And by the way, you'll fail the test if you don't say that's true. That's that's true. And you say, but well, what about too much inflammation? Okay, well, first of all, let's get straight that if you make the tissue cold, when it rewarms, the inflammatory response resumes. You'll find nothing in the literature that says what I just said isn't true. When the tissue rewarms, the inflammatory response resumes. Here's the problem, though. When you make the tissue cold to block inflammation, which you shouldn't be touching in the first place, but let's just say you did. And by the way, you're not blocking it. You're just delaying it. So it isn't like you actually accomplished what you thought you were going to accomplish. But you have made things worse. Because if you leave it cold long enough, you'll cause the backflow from the lymphatic vessels into interstitial space. So you actually increase the congestion in and around the damaged site. That waste is now viewed in effect by the immune system as a splinter, which sets off an inflammatory response and sends more fluid to the area to remove that waste and make sure and destroy any germs or whatever there might be there. And you go, well, no, wait a minute. You mean if I put ice on, it actually causes additional inflammation? Of course it does. It has to. The body's response to say, let's say you had something like uh, you put you put ice on and you got frostbite. Oh, my gosh, frostbite. What's that? It means you put your skin got too cold and it froze. That's called frostbite. Well, you say, well, so would that cause an inflammatory response? Well, of course it does. And then ask anybody, ask any clinician, you know, even if they graduated last in their class, <laughs> ask them, should you ever put ice directly over top of a superficial nerve? And the answer is, of course not, because you'll kill the nerve. And then the information that was in the uh, journal of uh, NSCA's journal, uh, what do they call their journal? Uh, journal of Strength and uh, Conditioning Research? Yes, yeah. Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. Uh, so what, the, what they found out with that was that they proved, they thought they were going to write an article about how icing damaged tissue facilitates recovery. But actually, the article, article title changed to topical cooling, icing delays recovery. <laughs> what they found out was that following eccentric exercise, putting ice on top actually killed muscle cells. And it's like, who, why isn't this understood? What, what do we have to do so that people understand what the problem is? And what we have to do is what we're doing right now. You help people understand what's wrong by showing them Here's how you solve the problem. Here's what you don't do. You don't put ice on damaged tissue. It slows down the process. So it delays healing. It increases swelling. It causes additional damage. And it shuts off the signals that alert to harmful movement. Now, for you, um, as you look at recovery as a whole, right? So, you know, certainly as we, we, we talk about this, it's, it's been discussions on the systemic level, right? Um, localized to an injury or, you know, an area that was trained hard during a training or competition session. So 
you know, what do you do, right? So you, you, you obviously, you have Mark Pro in your back pocket. You have these, these active recovery modalities. What do you like as, um, as other, you know, kind of interventions that maybe work on more of a systemic as opposed to localized level? Um, I mean, obviously speak to nutrition. Where, where do you see the whole recovery uh, puzzle kind of fitting together? What other modalities do you actually like? Well, more than modalities. Yeah. I'm, I'm and that's, very a, bad, that's confident. A, a bad word, I would say. I, I should have chosen I'm my not, words carefully. I'm very confident that, that hydration is huge, that nutrition is huge, that rest is huge. So I'm going to assume that you have somebody managing those three things with you. So you're adequately hydrated, nourished, and rested. Now, when you come back and you say, well, what should I do to facilitate recovery? Simple rule. It's so, it's not, in fact, it's so simple. I love it when I get a chance to actually say it's so simple. Anything that preserves and regenerates tissue. If it doesn't preserve and regenerate tissue, it's the wrong answer for recovery. So I'll give you a simple example that people often will say to me. Well, what about, uh, you know, rolling it out on, uh, on rollers, on, uh, on what are those things called foam rollers? And I go, well, that's not recovery. They go, no, no, it's in our recovery room. We actually <laughs> use it for recovery. And I go, well, it doesn't matter where it is. The intent is to find a bad spot, break adhesions, and cause tissue damage, right? Isn't that what the intent is? Well, yeah. So how could doing something that, by the nature of the process, is going to damage tissue, possibly be recovery. So you put it in a different category. You get out of the recovery category of that and you put it over in the training category. No doubt it would be in a very slight training category, but it gets put over in the training category. And you say, well, what about the Hawk grips or, or any of the products that do those kind of soft tissue mobilization? That would be recovery, right? No, of course not. The intent is to cause damage. So things that facilitate recovery, preserve and regenerate tissue, I'm for everything that does that. So something I think is a wonderful product is the power plate. I think the power plate is ingenious. In fact, I'm so glad that the power plate costs a lot of money and is heavy because that gives Mark Pro a great opportunity in the marketplace because you can't take that on a plane or back to the hotel room with you. But it's a great product. What does it do? It activates the muscle. So you're able to activate the muscle, which causes that increased circulation in and waste out. So it's a wonderful product. Uh, other things, that there are some things that, that are very popular right now. Um, I don't want to say brand names. I don't think that's appropriate. But there are products that squeeze the skin mm-hmm. and say they're recovery products. Okay, uh, not exactly. Um, but they're not training products. So they you'd have to put them in the recovery category if you're being fair. And I'm trying to be fair. Mm-hmm. But you got to watch that you didn't miss the point. And the point is this. There's four things that happen, has to happen for recovery. Now I'm condensing 150 pages in your textbook, but yeah. there's four things that have to happen. You got to bring good stuff in. You got to take bad stuff out. You got to produce and release the myokines that drive or mediate the tissue regeneration process, most specifically that angiogenesis and mitochondrial biogenesis. That's most specific. You got to do that. And then you have to reorganize repair tissue. So there's four things in. Put stuff in, bad stuff out, production, release of myokines, reorganize, repair tissue. So anything you look at, is it doing those four things? Let's just pick one of those squeezing the skin things. When they squeeze the skin, 
you can't possibly increase circulation in because <coughs> there's no stress. There's no loading. So there is no nitric oxide dependent vasodilation. There is no increased blood flow in. Now they'll say, well, we squeeze and let go. There's pressure. Okay. But say you have a hose coming out of your house and you stand the hose and you stop the water from down the other end and you take your foot off. Now the hose comes out the other end. Do you really think at the end of 10 minutes, if every, every minute you stood on and then a minute on, minute off, minute on, minute off, do you really think there'd be more water at the end of 10 minutes than if you just let the water come out the whole time? Mm-hmm. Of course it doesn't increase circulation. So now vascular circulation. Now, the next thing would be, well, well, what about uh, getting the waste out? Surely it gets the waste out. Well, that's not how the passive lymphatic system works. Now, if you say to me, well, Gary, it does work, and I say, okay, and I can empty a swimming pool with a shot glass, okay? <laughs> I can take a shot glass and I can empty a swimming pool, but that's not a very efficient way of doing it. Here's the reason it's not very good at lymphatic drainage. You have vessels, superficial, intermediate, and deep. There's no way around it. That's where they are. And then everything in between, so 165,000 miles of vessels in your body, lymphatic vessels, and they're passive. So let's just say you pick the optimal pressure. One company says they have the optimal pressure in sequencing. The other product says they have the optimal pressure in sequencing, and they kind of fight each other who's got the best. And I say, well, if one's wrong, maybe you're both wrong. So let me just think about this. Let's say you pick the pressure that was optimal, the best, for the superficial vessel. What impact would that pressure have on the larger, deeper, thicker vessel? I'll answer for you, nothing. If you pick the pressure that was optimal for the larger, thick, larger, deeper, thicker vessel, you would literally crush the superficial vessels. So the very nature of that process is you can never pick a pressure that exceeds the integrity of the superficial vessels, which means the larger, thicker, deeper vessels are going to have no impact at all. So is it true it works? Yes, and I can empty a swimming pool with a shock glass. So, okay, fine. Yes, you can. And then let's look and say, well, well, what about the production and release of the myokines that drive or mediate that tissue regeneration process? Well, unfortunately, um, if you don't activate the muscle, there is no production and release of the myokines. And there is no muscle activation. It's a passive squeeze. So they get another failing grade there. Reorganize and repair tissue. There's no stress in the tissue, so there's no reorganization. So there's four things you got to do. Good stuff in, bad stuff out, produce and release the myokines, and reorganize and repair tissue. It got three Fs. It didn't increase circulation in. It didn't produce and release myokines. It didn't reorganize and repair tissue. So they got three Fs, and I'm going to give them a C- for the shot class in the swimming pool emptying contest. <laughs> and so even – I'm from South Philly. Even in South Philly, three Fs and a C minus don't pass. <laughs> now, now, does it feel good? Yes. Do people like it? Yes. Does it cause you to not recover? No. So it's, it is a recovery tool. This is not a very good recovery tool. Okay. Is it a feel good tool? The answer is if a player gets out of it and says, I like that. That's a good thing. Recovery is just your body. It's your head, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, and these are really interesting points, and I, 
uh, I think they lead maybe into the next question. It's, it's funny, as you were saying that, there's a, there's a quote from Fergus Connolly that I think of. He said, uh, I think it's 90% of sports science is knowing what not to do. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you just listed the four boxes that need to be checked, you know, at the highest priority. And, you know, if you want to rule out the 90%, figure out what doesn't check all the boxes. Um, but let's talk about some, some, you know, and these will be kind of like the quick hitters. Like, what are some different protocols for Mark Pro, um, that you'll utilize? So if we're talking at acute recovery, Right. So, um, you know, it, you know, Corey Kluver goes out and throws 110 pitches. Um, you know, I know Corey has his ways of doing things, but you know, what do you typically recommend to your pitchers? How would they use it for recovery after an outing like that over say a, a five day rotation following a start? Well, the, the first thing is to identify the muscles that are tired and sore. Mm-hmm. So something that might throw a lot of people is it's often the opposing lower back muscle. So if you're a right-hander, your left lower back area. And what happens is when they lift their leg and they bang it down to the ground and it hits the ground, an enormous force goes up the leg into the yep. lower back. You have to stabilize the body and throw forward. So it isn't always the arm or the shoulder. Sometimes it's that opposing lower back. In fact, more often than I ever believed when I first realized that that was a problem. So first identify what's tired and sore. Once you identify what's tired and sore, All you do is place the pads in the most dense area of the muscle you're trying to activate. So let's just say, for example, uh, it's the the right shoulder. So you feel around and you say, well, that's a bone. Well, that's the collarbone. Okay, well, that's the shoulder blade. Okay, that's not where you put the pad. You put the pad in the most dense area of the muscle you're trying to activate. Now, why do you do that? Well, because the more fiber you attract, the less time it takes to accomplish a given task. So if you put it on the bone where there's not much fiber, it's going to take forever. If you put it on the most dense area of the muscle you're trying to activate, well, then all is well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that all becomes very simple to figure out. You put the pads in and around the damaged site. You activate the muscles. Take advantage of the lymphatic vessels by getting the muscles you're activating out of tension. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you don't put it on your shoulder and then drive your elbow into a treatment table to hold your hand steady so you can text. That would be wrong. What you want to do is get your arm completely out of tension. Take the load off the muscle so you don't hang it at your side and walk around the locker room. You take your arm, ideally, this is ideal, in a lazy boy chair, fully reclined, all the way back with a pillow between your arm and your torso and your arm crossed across your waist. Now, why do you do that? That takes all the stress and tension off the muscles of the arm because it's neutral to the floor at that point. The pillow will absorb the bounce because there will be a bounce when we stimulate because we hit two times a second. So there will be a bounce, but the pillow will absorb the bounce so there'll be no drawback. There'll be no isometric contraction against my signal from your end. Like if you were standing up and your arm were flopping, you'd be constantly trying to hold your arm still because it's flopping in the air. If you do what I just said, lazy boy chair, fully reclined, arm across the chest or on a pillow, you're good to go. Now, why do you want to do that? Because your goal is to preserve and regenerate. You don't want to lose any more. Unlikely you'd lose any more, by the way, by just throwing a baseball. But if something more significant happened, well, then you might have some loss, some significant congestion. But if there's not significant injection, you probably aren't going to have additional loss post work. Now, with that said, you want to preserve, so you want to decongest the area. But once you decongest the area, 
and you've restored normal circulation, now recovery is just right down the path. Whereas if you leave the area congested and you don't restore circulation, then recovery is compromised. So the, the question, the point becomes, okay, I want to do this and I want to do it the best way I can do it, but I don't want to waste any time, but I don't want to take any chances and not do it right. Okay, get the muscle you're activating out of tension. I said that wrong. Identify the muscle that's tired and sore. By the way, you can push on it and feel or the player can point. Find the most dense area of that muscle. So let's pick something simple to your eyes. If you're going to do your quad, you don't put it on your kneecap. There's not very much muscle density on your kneecap. Don't put it there. And don't put it up near your hip or down by your knee. That's not where it goes. Find the most dense area of the muscle you're trying to activate. Get the muscle you're activating out of tension. So get in a relaxed position. Don't elbow into the table. Don't stand up and walk around the training with your arm flopping in the air. Fully reclined, lazy boy chair, arm across the chest on a pillow. Perfect. Now, can you do it sitting up? You can do it sitting up. It's just better if you're back in the chair, like I just said. Would it work on a bed? Yes, it works great on a bed. How about a couch? Yes, it works great on a couch. Where you don't do it is walking around the locker room with your arm flopping in the air. Mm -hmm. Now, with all of that said, that's how simple it is. Mm -hmm. It takes effort. You have to think, but it's simple. You put the pad in the most dense area of the muscle you're trying to activate. You get the muscle you're activating out of tension. You get the load off the muscle. Now activate. That will contract the muscles in and around the damaged site. That will increase the blood flow in so you bring the supplies in better because that stress will cause the nitric oxide-dependent vasodilation. So that what basically happens is there's a signal that goes across the extracellular matrix to tell the endothelium to convert an ingredient to nitric oxide. That nitric oxide then drops down around the muscle, around the vessel, causes it to relax, and bingo, you increase blood flow. So it's a wonderful thing. And by the way, that's an index peer-reviewed study proving our technology does that. However, don't get crazy about that because doing ankle pumps or squeezing a ball would do the same thing. Uh, so it isn't that we're doing something weird. We're simply taking advantage of the way the body re- regenerates and preserves tissue. Mm-hmm. Now, can those same principles, and maybe this is, this is leading into the next question, actually, is, so let's talk about injury rehab slash, you know, sports medicine scenarios. Where have you seen people have success in that regard? Um, and where would you like to see, you know, these, these implements used uh, more effectively in the actual sports medicine world as opposed to just maybe acute recovery for otherwise healthy athletes? Well, what's happening is uh, the Mark Pro technology is also available in a prescription product. Uh, that's not what this conversation is about, so I'm mm-hmm. not going to push that brand, but, yep. but, but it is available in a prescription product. So if you were following these principles, whether it was a slight problem or a very significant problem, I'll tell you post-op, for example, uh, a, a, a head trainer that you personally know, and off air I'll tell you his name, mm-hmm. uh, sent me a picture, two pictures. I think I showed you these pictures, and it was post-op, uh, ulnar collateral ligament reconstruction, second operation, hands swollen like a like he's wearing a mitten. <laughs> and he sent me the picture. He said, "Gary, you know, I kind of followed what you told me, and uh, here it is. And 72 hours later, here it is. 72 hours later, totally, completely clean, no swelling. Everybody knows." Everybody, I don't know anybody who's ever argued with this or even questioned me on this. That's a two and a half week problem. We had a clear in 72 hours. And you go, well, 
How'd you do that? Uh, it's just waste. See, if you look at swelling and you make it something important, as opposed to just saying, well, it's just swelling. It's, it's, it isn't a good or a bad thing. It's merely the accumulation of waste. At the end of the inflammatory cycle, you have not yet evacuated. If you change its position in the market like I have and just said, it ain't good or bad. It's merely the accumulation of waste. At the end of the inflammatory cycle, you have yet evacuated. So then the only reasonable question is, from my point of view, I understand it's my point of view. My point of view is, well, how does it evacuate? Well, it doesn't evaporate. It's got to go back through those passive lymphatic vessels. So you're going to have to activate the muscles in and around the damaged site. You activate those muscles, that waste will evacuate right in front of your eyes. In otherwise healthy people, their immune system works. By the way, it, when you get hit by a pitch or you roll your shoulder or you roll your ankle, <coughs> your lymphatic system and muscles aren't destroyed. They're still there. <laughs> what you do is activate the muscles in and around the damaged site. The waste will evacuate by your lymphatics. So with that athlete, who they had him clean, had his hand clean in, in, uh, in uh, 72 hours, as opposed to two and a half weeks, here's what we saved. Instead of suffocating and killing otherwise perfectly healthy cells who are not involved in the initial trauma, we had it clear in 72 hours. Instead of having faulty scarring from lack of movement because of the swelling and subsequent pain, we didn't have that problem. And we didn't have the downstream systemic issues atrophy. So it's like, well, this is incredible. I mean, can you really take something that takes two and a half weeks and bring it back to three days? Oh, yeah, all the time. I have a paper called Procrastination, a Fundamental Flaw in Injury Management. In that, my doc, again, is the editor-in-chief of the Vision of Sports Medicine Journal. is my co-author. When I first said to him, guys are reporting to me that what takes four weeks are doing in one week, he said, Gary, don't say that. I said, but it's what they're telling me. He goes, Gary, just take half. <laughs> and half. And I went okay, but so we worded it so we weren't lying. You know, I don't, I don't like the lie, even though it would be a, a positive lie in effect, making it longer than it's taking. But we wrote it in such a way we said we're cutting the time in half. How are we doing it? We don't have the downstream problems. So where should it be? Every post op, every post trauma. Your foul ball goes off your shin. Okay. I want you to picture this. Everybody listen and picture this. Batters at the plate. The ball bounces off the plate, nails him right in the shin. You hear it bang and he drops to the ground. Do you need to run out and see if it's going to bruise and swell? <laughs> There's no question, right? You know it's going to happen. So why in the world would you wait till tomorrow to see what you're going to do? If you know it's going to swell, why don't you manage it right now? And I'll give you an analogy to that. If you knew it was going to snow 24 inches in the next 24 hours, if you knew it, one inch per hour, if every hour on the hour you would open your front door with a good stiff broom, you could effortlessly keep that one inch of snow up your sidewalk. If, however, you wait till morning, and open your door to 24 inches of angry snow, I assure you will not be effortless and you will not clear it with a good stiff broom. <laughs> Don't look at it like it's a problem. Don't, oh, it's going to swell. No, <laughs> stop it. It's going to swell if you let it swell. If you look and say instead, 
I know that it's going to snow 24 inches in the next 24 hours. I know it. I just, I, I'm positive. Then begin activating the muscles around those lymphatic vessels and evacuate that waste as it begins to accumulate. Why in the world would you wait until it accumulates? And you say, well, that's so simple. No, I have proof. I actually got a call from one of my trainers. Uh, I have a video out with 13 athletic trainers from different schools from around the country, from LSU, from Villanova, from Georgia Tech, the University of South Carolina, all these different schools, just trainers who I've taught this stuff to and are now practicing it on their own. And by the way, remember, I didn't teach them anything they already know. I just reorganized what they already knew. Listen to some of the interviews that I had there. I believe I sent the interview to you so you can post it up in your site if you want. One of the guys called me and said, Gary, we got a problem. I said, what? And that's not a good thing when one of your guys calls who has 30 machines at his school, more than 30 machines, and he says, we got a problem. This is not a good call. And I said, I said, what? And he goes, we got to rewrite the protocols post-op me. And I went, well, why? And he said, look, here's what's going on. Normally, when you have blank extension and flexion, you can begin weight bearing. We've got that in five days now. They're not ready to wait there. I said, this is a good problem, right? He goes, yeah, but can you believe this? Well, no, I didn't believe it. I didn't, I never thought it, so there was nothing for me to believe. Of course, if you don't have the swelling, and that's what restricted you before, and now it's not there, you got to rewrite your protocol because what you were racing it on before was when you had blank extension and a flexion, that's when you could wait there. Well, you know what? You don't have that five days now. So post-op, if your doc isn't recommending that you decongest the area and restore circulation around the damaged site, I don't know what they're thinking. So there's where it belongs. There you go. Post-op. Now, we have a clinical product for that. It's not complicated. In professional baseball, football, hockey, basketball, soccer, I have contracts with the, uh, with, say for example, the NFL and, and, the, and Major League Baseball, and I have contracts where it's an automatic approval. In other words, a player gets hurt. It's a work comp claim in, 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 in professional athletics. Player gets hurt. The adjuster approves it as the prescription's written. Now, why would they do that? Because they know what I just said is true. We've been doing that with our prescription product. For 38 years. <laughs> and it's like, wow, this is just incredible. Why doesn't everybody know this? I can tell you why. Let's go back to the beginning of this. Because rice is nice. <laughs> it rhymed, it caught, and it became the most recognized protocol in Western medicine. And it completely screwed up the process. It had people resting, icing, Compressing and elevating. You know what's really funny about the elevation part? It's, it's, this is, I guess sometimes I, I think my mind might be a little, little mixed up when I say I think it's funny, but I mean funny in an odd way, not funny and gee, not funny. But they'll tell you to elevate post trauma to stop the bleeding, right? Okay. Let me ask you a question. You compress the area, you make it cold, you elevate it and you sit still. How does clotting take place? Like, where do the ingredients come from? Like, where are the clotting factors? How does that process take place? Like, where do those things come from? 
Do they come from the air? Do they come from wishing? Or do they come via circulation? Now think about what they've done. The clotting factors are trying to get to the damaged site. The, the vessels are constricted. There's a chemicals that are secreted right by the damaged vessel that constricts the vessel. Now in comes the clotting factors that grow a clot, seal the clot, repair the vessel, and dissolve the clot in three to ten days or so. Okay, now let's look at what's supposed to happen. The clotting factors are in the blood. So in their genius, they have them sit still, don't move, which slows down cardiac output. They then make it cold, which slows down vascular circulation. They then compress around the area, which just about stops circulation. Then they tell you to elevate the body part, I guess to prevent any clotting factors from getting to the site. It's the most insane thing I've ever thought. Well, the first time I thought of Phil, I was like, well, why would they tell you to do that? Now, that doesn't mean that I think that everything they tell you to do is wrong. Just the one thing they tell you to do is wrong. That's what's wrong. The Rice Protocol <laughs> is wrong. The guy who invented it, who made it up, who popularized it, publicly recanted, wrote the forward to my book. It's done. Stop doing it. If you have questions, call me. I'll explain it to you. If, if trainers, doctors, therapists, I'll explain. I'll, I'll go on the phone. People say, "I can't believe you talked to me for all that time." This matters. <laughs> and I tell you why it matters. Huge reason why it matters. You know that athlete I told you about a bit ago with the longitudinal quad tear. <laughs> if they had been mismanaged, they wouldn't have played in the World Championships ten days later, would they? By the way, that individual played a significant role in the semifinals to causing them, the, the, the U.S. team to win the match. Not only that, but in the finals, they won the world championship. So listen to why it matters. If that individual had been mismanaged, they wouldn't have contributed to winning the semifinal. They wouldn't been involved in winning the world championship. They wouldn't have stood on the podium when they played our national anthem and received the gold medal. They wouldn't have been able to tell those stories to anyone that asked them for the rest of their life, including their grandchildren. And, uh, you know, it's, it's you made a, a, a good point, too, is you, one of the things that I think you become known for is your accessibility. Um, you're, you're a guy who is always available to, to answer questions, whether they're from athletic trainers in Major League Baseball or, you know, basically folks in the general fitness population who want to, you know, take make the most of the protocol. So um, it's probably a good place for us to, to transition to an ending. So uh, it, uh, people can find you on social media. Um, it's the Mark Pro. Uh, M-A-R-C-P-R-O um, on both Instagram and Twitter. Um, your email address is gary at markpro.com and I know you're a guy who's always super punctual with your responses. Um, we're, we're big Mark Pro consumers uh, and, and supporters. One of the things I'll say is I was initially not 
totally bought in. And the guy who sold me on Mark Pro was actually Corey Kluber, um, who is one of our longtime athletes who um, started using Mark Pro and noticed a, a profound difference in his recovery. So it was one of those things where, you know, I was a, a horse that needed to be led to water to, to, to get to drink. So um, Corey sold me and it's something that's definitely been impactful for a lot of our athletes and, and brought us around on, on things that, you know, like you just said, they aren't, they aren't part of sports medicine curriculums when they really, really should be. Um, so uh, you guys have been awesome. They've actually uh, provided great coupon code for any of our subscribers at markpro.com. Uh, if you use the, the coupon code Cressy, that'll get you 10% off on e-orders. Um, Gary, you've been a rock star. We really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I love doing it. And uh, so that your audience knows something about what you just said, um, that is the maximum discount that yep. anybody can get. Uh, that's actually the same price that professional athletic teams pay. You're a good man. We appreciate you taking care of our, our folks and, and certainly really appreciate you taking the time to do this. So thanks so much. I love it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.